0: Well, good morning, Great Parks Chapel, and greetings from St Thomas Baptist Church, although I'm not in the church at the moment, I'm actually in my living room, but we won't won't focus on that. My name is Tom, and uh, it's such a blessing for me to be able to record a sermon for you today. I say this every time I come to preach for you at Great Parks, and I've come a few times now in the last couple of years, but uh, I love Great Parks, and I have incredibly fond memories of popping in and out during weekends. Um, coming to Great Parks Chapel and feeling incredibly welcomed by all of you. I was uh, all but adopted by Kev and Kath Bartlett with the amount of times that I was there, uh, the amount of times I was staying over with Tom and with Jesse and with the Sumption boys as well. John and Gemma basically became my youth workers, my church youth workers for a few years when they took me along with the Great Parks group to Big Church Day Out and to s- Spring Harvest as well. And in more recent years, it's been really encouraging to to see the role that Clary has taken as your children's worker and also all the great evangelism work that George has been doing too. So thank you for that encouragement. I've loved to to see all of these things popping up on Facebook and, and I hope God really blesses what you're doing in painting, especially actually amidst the different way of doing church that we are going through at the moment. These are great challenges that we're facing and my prayer for you as a church is that over the next few weeks, you as a church and your leadership team um, will have great wisdom in knowing what to do as lockdown restrictions are lifted in this country. Uh, I hope and pray that God will really give you wisdom to know how to best proceed. You know, the church really exists to do two things, two main things anyway. Uh, The first is to spread the glorious good news of Jesus. And the second really is to to help and equip Christians to deepen in their love for Jesus and to grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. The passage we're looking at this morning is called 2 Timothy is the book it's from and it's it's chapter three, 2 Timothy three. And in this passage, Um, We are told that the only way you can do those two things that the church needs to do, the only way you can spread the good news and help and equip Christians to deepen their love for Jesus, the only way you can do those really well is if you are encouraged and spurred on in the faith. So we're going to read this passage now. Um, Grab your Bibles 2 Timothy chapter three, but it will also appear on the screen as well, either here or here, depending on what my wife decides to add to it. But let's read 2 Timothy chapter three together, verses one to 17. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jams opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far. Because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, I've always uh, enjoyed watching and playing tennis. It's one of the sports that I've always kind of had a bit of an interest in. And one of the best things about being British and liking tennis is that you put all of the pressure in the world on Andy Murray's shoulders when Wimbledon comes around. Well, that's not happening this year. And actually, for the last few years, Andy Murray has been injured. So, yeah, British people haven't had any tennis players to moan about for a while. But for years, Andy Murray was never able to win a Grand Slam tournament, one of the four biggest tennis tournaments. Wimbledon is one of them. Everyone knew he was amazing, but he just couldn't get over the line and win that amazing Grand Slam, that first Grand Slam. And by 2012, Andy Murray had lost in four Grand Slam finals. He'd been so close four times, but he couldn't do it. But in 2012 also, the former tennis player, Ivan Lendl, became Andy Murray's coach. And supposedly something, something really, really clicked when Lendl started coaching Murray. And in the two periods when Lendl coached Murray, these kind of periods of a few years, Murray won three Grand Slam tournaments and two Olympic gold medals. No other man has won two Olympic gold medals before in singles tennis. Something to do with Lendl really encouraging Andy Murray to be aggressive from the baseline. If you know tennis, that really means something to you. But basically, it doesn't matter seemingly, how much natural ability or talent you have as a tennis player. The importance of having the right coach makes all the difference. Andy Murray, one of the greatest tennis players of our generation, until he had the right training, the right encouragement, he simply couldn't get across the finishing line and win that elusive Grand Slam. The reason I bring this up is because in the letter of 2 Timothy, Paul, the apostle Paul, is Timothy's Ivan Lendl. Paul is writing from prison to encourage and spur Timothy on to keep on holding fast to the gospel as he continues in his ministry in the city of Ephesus. And the advice that Paul gives Timothy is essential for him and the Ephesian church if they are to remain strong in the gospel and remain strong against false teachers and persecution. And actually it's the same for you watching this video this morning, if you're a Christian, then as I said before, it is your mission to spread the gospel, both personally and collectively as a church, as Great Parks Chapel. So Paul, the Apostle Paul is your Evan Lendl too. You need to listen to Paul's instruction in the same way that Murray listens to Ivan Lendl's instruction in the same way that Timothy listened to Paul's instruction 2,000 years ago when this letter was written. You need to listen to the words of 2 Timothy in order to be spurred on and encouraged in faith. Now I want to suggest to you that this passage is really Paul doing three things. He's telling us three things that we need to do to remain on the right track, to be encouraged and spurred on. The first is that we need to love God. Very simply, we need to love God. And that is verses one to nine that we're going to look at. The second point is that as Christians, we should prepare for persecution, prepare for persecution. We're going to look at verses 10 to 13 for that. And then finally, we're going to look at this encouragement that Paul gives us to simply hold fast to scripture, hold fast to Scripture. And that's going to be verses 14 to 17. So really three relatively simple encouragements. But when we really grasp them, that is all we need to keep on sharing Jesus and keep on growing in Jesus. So let's have a look. Love God. That's the first point. Verses one to nine. And have your Bible open in front of you because, believe it or not, I'm going to be referencing it quite a lot. Now, Paul, in the chapter before this one. In 2 Timothy 2, he, he's mentioned a group of people who have just been causing mayhem. They've been spreading a false gospel, a false message in the city of Ephesus. And all we know really is, is what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18. He basically tells us that there's this group who are just talking smack about the resurrection of Jesus they're saying that the resurrection of Jesus isn't really real. And actually, Paul goes to the extent where he says the faith of some people has even been destroyed in Ephesus 2. And in verses 1 to 9 of this chapter, Paul effectively paints us a picture of what this false teaching will lead to if it goes unchecked, if it goes unchallenged. And verses 1 to 9 are a bit like a funnel. Paul's references to false teachers generally, it starts very kind of broad, And then it narrows as he goes through it. The references become more pointed and more directed. So let's have a look. In verses 1 to 5, Paul refers to false teachers in general. He tells us that false teachers are lovers of themselves and lovers of money. They've got all of these awful qualities that are listed out that give them a form of godliness. But actually, they ultimately deny God's power. You see, these false teachers, they're like empty shells. They're like an Easter egg. They look great on the outside, but there's nothing inside. It's just hollow. There's nothing of worth. And then in verses six to seven, it seems like Paul switches to referring quite specifically to the false teachers that Timothy himself is dealing with in Ephesus. That these teachers take advantage of women in a, in a really sinister way. They, they worm their way into homes. They teach so much, but the people that they take advantage of, never actually learn the truth. It's this idea of empty words. They hear so much, but they never learn. And finally, in verses eight to nine, Paul gives two specific examples of two false teachers from the Old Testament who are named James and Jambres. I think that's the way to pronounce it. No one, I don't think anyone really knows. Well, I definitely don't anyway. Now, if you don't know who they are, I don't blame you. The names are actually never, they're never mentioned in the Old Testament but the the names that in Christian tradition are given traditionally to the two sorcerers who oppose Moses in Exodus 7. And if you've seen the film The Prince of Egypt, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. It's these two guys who are sorcerers of the Egyptian pharaoh who try and kind of uh, explain and uh, disregard all of the miracles that God is doing through Moses. But listen, basically what we're getting through these verses is that Paul is describing to us a really nasty group of people. And we could go through all of the qualities that these people have and dissect them. And there are loads. But really, Paul makes it clear that there is one root problem to these false teachers that has led them down this dark, dark road. And the root problem is found in, in what these people love. It's found in what these people love. Paul says that rather than being lovers of God in verse 4, these false teachers are lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. And that is the main problem. All of those attributes that are listed in verses 2 to 5, they're they're really just the natural fruit that comes from people who love these things, from people who love themselves, love money, and love pleasure. Love pleasure. Now, how do we know this? Well, the Bible actually tells us that human beings are a little bit like trees. It's a theme throughout scripture. It's present in the Psalms a lot. And Jesus himself, when he's referring to false teachers, similarly in Matthew 7, he says this in Matthew 7, 15 to 18. He says, watch out for false prophets, false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You see, those characteristics of the false teachers are indicative of where their heart is, of what they're rooted in. They're rooted in themselves, pleasure, money. And this is really something that goes back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, when the first human beings, Adam and Eve, when they sinned for the first time, believe it or not, they, they didn't just stop loving God, they didn't stop loving God, they simply started loving other things more. As Saint Augustine, the, the great Christian theologian would say, their loves became disordered. You see, human beings, we're beings of love. We love things. We were created to love God primarily, but when Adam and Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they ended up loving themselves, loving knowledge, loving this power and desire more than the God that created them. And that's what's happening here in 2 Timothy 3. We have a prime case of disordered loves, These false teachers, instead of loving God first, and then loving those around them like all teachers and pastors and elders are called to do, they love themselves, they love pleasure, they love money more. Now the danger for us, the danger for you, today when you read lists like this one in verses 1-9, to is that you will think that this is only about the especially bad people. This is about the, the false teachers. This is about the, the out and out sinners. But what we need to realize, and this is this takes some, some doing, this takes some pride swallowing, is that we are just as prone to fall down this path as anyone else. We are just as prone to love ourselves, to love money, to love pleasure, as these false teachers are. We are no exception. And that's because if you're a Christian, every single Christian is simply just a sinner that is saved by God's grace, God's favour that we don't deserve. And when we're left to our own devices, we'll actually love anything other than God more, unless we're constantly going back to God to remind ourselves of who he is. Tim Keller's a a pastor or a former pastor in in America, in New York, and I'd really recommend any of his books. Really, really helpful. And also the sermons he does online as well. Um, I found them greatly, greatly beneficial to me throughout my Christian life. my life generally as well. But in his book, The King's Cross, he describes this phenomenon of loving things other than God as the difference between a deepest and a loudest desire. Basically, if you're a Christian, you're ransomed and redeemed, so your, your deepest desire becomes Jesus. You love Jesus. Yet because we still live in a fallen world, in fallen bodies, So often, your loudest desire, the desire that you seek the most, is not Jesus. Our loudest desires and loves are not the things of God, but so often they're things like uh, academic success, financial security, romantic endeavours, just to name a few. For a Christian, your deepest desire is Jesus, but the loudest desire, the desire that takes over everything else, When you forget what god has done for you it ends up being the things of this world now our lives might not look as dramatic as what we find in verses one to nine but it will happen we will drift from god if we don't keep on reminding ourselves of who he is our salvation is always secure and i think that's what the bible teaches but unless we're we're continually in a process of, of asking ourselves the question what do we love most then we will coast away Our deepest desire will be God, but our loudest desire will be anything but God. You see, when it comes to holding fast to the gospel, the most important thing, first and foremost, that we must do is heed Paul's warning and ensure that we genuinely love God, that we desire God, that we delight in God. Because if we don't do those things, if we don't genuinely see God as the most precious person, then there is no chance that we are going to hold fast and go on steady in our faith. Now, the natural question that arises, and I hope is in your mind, is is how can we do this? How can we love God the most in this world when we're so tempted by other things? Well, for me personally, I think it actually comes down to, to knowing and understanding that God is someone you can love and that God is in and of himself delightful that God is not the God just of our heads, but God is actually the God of our hearts as well. He's someone that we can enjoy and delight in. Now, this is something that uh, a Puritan theologian from the 1700s, the 18th century, named Jonathan Edwards understood really well. Edwards wrote this sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light. And in it, he uses an analogy to, to show the difference between simply knowing that God is good in your head but actually experiencing that God is good in your heart. This is what he says. There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holy God and his holy grace. In the same way, there is a difference between someone having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a real sense of its sweetness. A person may have the former but they may not know how honey tastes. But a person can't have the latter until he, has, until he has the idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. That's the end of the quote. Now that's, that can be a bit confusing, it's a bit dense, so let me explain it for you. There is a difference between knowing of God and experiencing God for yourself. In the same way that there is a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and actually tasting that honey is sweet one is in your head and one is in your head and your heart what we must do as christians today is ensure that we let the truths of god go from our heads to our hearts by actually meditating by mulling over god when we come and have our quiet times or bible studies or whatever we need to make sure That is more like a bath that we're sitting in and enjoying, not a shower that just gets the job done. Not just a a habit or something we do when there's nothing else to do or when when our time is free. All we need to do is sit down, look at Jesus in his beauty and in his glory and say, wow, how amazing is he? How amazing is Jesus? And that is the key, really, to to loving God and ensuring that you don't end up chasing all of the other loud desires that the world throws at us. And as I said, when we're left to our own devices, uh, we will go on sinning. That's what Paul says. He says in his sinful nature, he sins, but in his redeemed nature, in and of himself, now he's in Christ. he, He wants to do good things, but he can't. That's what he says in the book of Romans. So what we need to do is we need to ask God's help to do this. We need to ask for God's help because we can't do it by ourselves. That's the first point, love God. We're encouraged to love God by Timothy, not be like these false teachers. Now, the second point is that we need to prepare for persecution. And that's in verses 10 to 13. So in the next few verses, Paul moves on from these false teachers and he focuses on Timothy. And what Timothy should be like instead the first thing Timothy should do is prepare for persecution. This is what Paul says in verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, wow, that's quite a statement. And the evidence for this is Paul's life. And in Paul writes in, in verse 11, he lists of three places where he himself suffered persecution during his first ministry journey. In Acts 13 and 14, you can read about them. He says, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. These are the three places that I was persecuted. Let me explain briefly what happened. In Antioch, Paul was expelled. In Iconium, Paul was nearly stoned. And then in Lystra, Paul was actually stoned. He was dragged out of the city because people assumed he was dead. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, will be persecuted. And it's the same today. Christians are, by definition, followers of Jesus. When we look at Jesus' life, we see a life that is full of persecution. The Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And that persecution of Jesus actually leads to his death on the cross. Now, Christians all over the world are persecuted, and Yeah, we need to pray for the persecuted church. We need to do all we can to support our brothers and sisters. But for you in the UK, for me in the UK, our persecution looks different. It's not necessarily physical in the same way it is elsewhere. We're not at risk necessarily in this country of getting stoned and dragged out of the city. I think by and large, actually, the persecution we face in this country is an intellectual persecution. Because people are at times fiercely opposed to the claims of Christianity, the claims that Christianity is the only true religion or that Jesus is king and people will intellectually oppose the beliefs that you find in the Bible and you need to be prepared for that because if you're not, if persecution or adversity uh, to you being a Christian is a surprise to you then you are really going to struggle to be spurred on in faith, to continue in the faith like Timothy did if persecution takes you by surprise, then you're either going to think you've done something wrong, because you're going to think, why am I being persecuted? Maybe I'm not doing the Christian life properly. Or you'll give up, and you'll just not live for Christ anymore. Because you'll say, well, I didn't sign up for that. I, I didn't know that the Christian life was so hard. But you know, in all of this, be encouraged. This is not a discouraging thing. Uh, statement that Paul makes. It's an encouraging statement that Paul makes because ultimately Paul was rescued from all three of those places. And this points to the fact that ultimately through Jesus, we are safe from the greatest persecution of all. And that is death itself. Because when Jesus took death and sin on his shoulders on the cross, he, and then when he, when he got buried, when he left sin, he left death in the ground when he rose again, victorious. and Because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of Jesus' defeat over death and sin, you and I as Christians, we can, we can face persecution with the absolute certainty that whatever happens in this life and in this world, we will be with our father in heaven when we pass on into the next life. Now, I'd love to spend more time on this and flesh this out, but we've got to move on. If you want to know more about a godly reaction to persecution, though, then I would encourage you to just read the book of Acts. It's right after the book of John and before Romans in the Bible. More specifically, read Acts 4 and see it, just the most amazing reaction that Peter and John have to their persecution from Jewish leaders. So that's the second point. Prepare for persecution. Let's move on to this last point. Hold fast to Scripture. Hold fast to scripture, verses 14 to 17. So the last encouragement that Paul gives Timothy is to help his faith. And he's going to help his faith through telling him about the Bible. And what's great about this passage, this last little passage in 2 Timothy 3, is that Paul doesn't just give us a blanket statement. He doesn't just say, hold fast to scripture, enjoy. He actually tells us why the Bible is worth holding fast to and continuing it. Paul gives us one crucial statement about what scripture is before practically telling us what scripture can do. Paul tells us that scripture, all scripture, the Bible you have in your hands today, is God-breathed. It's God-breathed, and this means that scripture is breathed out by God. In the same way you and I breathe out breath, breathe in breath, push out breath from our lungs when we speak and breathe, So it is with the Bible and God's voice. You see, the Bible is a miracle in and of itself because it is a book written by humans, yet it is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the word of God. Because it's the word of God, the spoken word of God written down for us to read, that actually means that the Bible has power. I don't know if you think about that when you hold the Bible. The Bible is powerful. We know that there is power in God's word because at the very beginning of the Bible, God, what does God do to create the world? Does he kick his fingers? Does he clap his hands? No. And God said, let there be light. God spoke at the beginning of the world. And Paul in 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 6, he picks up on the same thing when he says this. For God, for God who said, let there be light in darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that because that's another mouthful. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me explain that. See, when we hear God's word, which today we hear through God's written word, the Bible. When we hear it, when we read it, God's light shines into our hearts and we see the face of Jesus. The same word that spoke creation into being is the word that creates new life in us by simply showing us Jesus, by showing us the crucified and risen king. That is why the Bible makes us wise for salvation, as Paul says, because the Bible reveals Jesus to us. When we look at Jesus, when we see his sacrifice on the cross, when we see his resurrection from the dead, we are given the opportunity to believe in him by faith, Paul says here. We are made wise for salvation. And let me give you one example from scripture, just so you know I'm not making this up. We see the most wonderful example when Jesus uh, takes two men on the road to Emmaus and he basically gives them a Bible study. Jesus walks alongside them. And he explains how all of the prophets in the Old Testament are actually speaking about him. They're pointing to him. This is what we read in Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Scripture shows us Jesus. And then after Jesus disappears, these two men, they just look at each other and they say, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And that personally is one of my favourite Bible verses. Because that Bible verse shows us the effect of God's word speaking into our hearts. God's word shines into our hearts and it shows us the glory of the risen Jesus. And that should just cause our hearts to burn within us. It should cause our hearts to jump for joy and when we, when, we, when we view scripture in this way, when we view it as God's word, when we view it as God breathed with the power to change us, pointing us to Jesus and making us wise for salvation, when we understand that that is what scripture is, it just makes sense to build your life upon it. It makes sense to, to use scripture in the face of persecution, to seek scripture for wisdom, for help, for guidance, When we see scripture as God breathed, that is when we'll be led to verse 16. That is when we'll be led to understand the Bible, as Paul says, something that will teach us, correct us, rebuke us, train us, equip us for every good work. So often as Christians, it's so easy to be in the the Christian bubble, so often in a church, so easy to be in a church bubble, and we know that we should go to scripture. We know that's a good thing. But unless we know the true power of scripture, unless we know that it's God's word, it's God-breathed. We are not going to go to scripture naturally. We're not going to want to go. Scripture is not a dusty old book. It is powerful and it causes our hearts to burn within us, just like it did for those two men on the road to Emmaus. Let me finish by telling you a short story of a few people who understood that scripture was God-breathed. In the 16th century, uh, the Catholic Church affirmed that the authority of the Pope and the authority of the church was higher than that of the Bible. But a man called Martin Luther and the rest of the reformers, the reformation, they stood up and they said, no, it is scripture and scripture alone that has the highest authority. Martin Luther famously said, a simple layman, which is like an average church person, a simple layman armed with Scripture." is greater than the mightiest Pope without it. And then a few hundred years later in the 18th century, the the enlightenment effectively suggested that human reason was the highest authority. We can only trust things that we can see uh, or touch or use our five senses to experience. Anything else is not worth following. Yet people like George Whitfield, an English Anglican, he held fast to scripture simply preaching it from place to place. Apparently he preached the Bible over 18,000 times during his ministry against a backdrop of the Enlightenment, where people said that our five senses were the method. And then go a hundred years further again, in the the 19th and 20th centuries, Europe, the whole of Europe was a, a hotbed of theological liberalism and the historical critical method, which basically means that scholars Smart people all over Europe, they saw the Bible as nothing more than a, a history book that was full of errors. But a theologian called Karl Barth wrote a commentary on the book of Romans in the 1920s, and he said that the only way we can know God is through his word, Jesus Christ. One reporter uh, referred to that commentary as being like a, a bombshell in the theologian's playground. Now, none of those people I just mentioned were perfect. Believe me, they, they were all kind of nuts in their own way. Some, they were all sinners at the end of the day. Some of their views were 100% great in some ways, in my opinion. But they knew that God was perfect. That his word was perfect. That the Bible is the ultimate authority. You see, in every generation doesn't matter what year you were born in, what year this is right now, in every generation there is something that threatens viewing the Bible as our ultimate authority. Something comes along that threatens the Bible's status as God breathed. And in every generation God has raised up faithful men and women who have held firm to scripture. You know today we find ourselves in the midst of secularization, and individualism. People are suggesting that to hold to the Bible is is outdated and irrelevant. But my encouragement to you, Great Parks Chapel, my encouragement to you is that you are to be the Martin Luthers, the George Whitfields, the Karl Barths. You are to be the people of this generation in this year of 2020 who stand up and say that the Bible is God-breathed that the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. My question to you is, are you going to hold fast to Scripture as your ultimate authority? As a church, for you, this is vital. But for you personally, as a person, this is crucial as well. What is your ultimate authority? Are you going to hold fast to Scripture or are you going to let yourself just rise and fall with whatever the tide of the intellectual world happens to be doing you see friends the the only way you will be spurred on and encouraged in faith the only way you will grow as a christian is if you remember the three things that paul told timothy in 2 timothy 3 love god prepare for persecution and hold fast to scripture are you going to do that let's pray Father God, we thank you that Paul decided under the guidance of your Holy Spirit to, to write this wonderful passage. In it, we are shown the warnings of false teachers. We're compelled to actually love God instead of ourselves. Will you help us, Father, to love Jesus? By the power of your Holy Spirit, will you draw us and stir our hearts to not just know about Jesus in our heads, but to love him in our hearts as well? Father, for when we're persecuted, whatever that might look like, will you help us to be prepared for it? And will you help us to be prepared for persecution by holding fast to the ultimate authority in this world, which is your Bible. Thank you that that is God-breathed. And I pray for all of us that as we finish our time together, that you'll help us to think through better. How can we really hold fast to scripture? What decisions will we make if we truly hold fast to your word, your God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired word of God? Father, I pray for Great Park Chapel. I pray for everyone watching this video. Will you bless them as a church over the next few weeks? Give them great wisdom, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.